Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome back to another episode of Recycler Secrets. Today I have with us Mike Sapo and Roger Cargill. Mike Sapo is from Rossock over in the Detroit market, uh, the Resource Recovery and Recycle Authority of Southwest Oakland County. And Roger Cargill is a f- big member of Chupan Recycling, which is the largest processor of uh, bottle deposits here in the state of Michigan. And today we're going to talk a little bit about glass and what glass is doing in the marketplace and the pros and cons of having glass in the recycle stream versus a redemption process. Uh, We're going to kind of walk through uh, what the evolution of the bottle deposit was here in the state of Michigan. We're going to talk a little bit about how bottle recycling is done at the MRF. We're going to talk about which systems are best. We're going to discuss the value propositions. And then we're also going to talk a little bit about separating that out aluminum and glass in that value proposition. Hopefully we're going to give you a lot of good food for thought. And we're just going to kind of talk through things uh, in a casual way. These guys are great sparring individuals, so they're not going to fight with each other too much. But they are going to give you different perspectives from time to time. Um, I'm going to let Roger just take a minute and introduce himself and talk about Shoepan. And then we'll go to Mike for a moment. Like Jonathan said, my name's Roger Cargill. I'm um, a sustainable projects manager for Shoepan Recycling. I have a past history in 10 years experience in public space recycling, and I was also a uh, founding member of the current Michigan State University Recycling Program. Now I work mostly in the legislative arm and business development arm of Chupan Recycling. Enjoy life every day. It's my passion. Thanks, Jonathan and Roger. So my name is Mike Sapo. I'm the general manager of the Resource Recovery and Recycling Authority of Southwest Oakland County, uh, which is a mouthful, and, and why when we answer the phone we just say Recycling Authority. Uh, we're a municipal solid waste authority that assists our nine member communities in Southwest Oakland County with their curbside and drop-off programs for solid waste, recycling, composting, household hazardous waste, so we're engaged in community stewardship through an intergovernmental and private-public partnership model uh, designed to ensure that our communities have access to environmentally sound and fiscally responsible options for the materials that they have in their homes and they want to get rid of at the end of the life of those materials. So, Mike, we're going to stick with you for a second, and I just want you to kind of talk through in your uh, in your line of work at the MRF level what it means to get that glass and that aluminum in and what that value proposition looks like at the MRF level. So there are a, a couple of important uh, material streams that come into our facility uh, that uh, have other options from time to time through you know, the deposit system. Uh, aluminum, 
PET and and glass primarily those those beverage containers that uh, uh, might otherwise go back to a retail location because the consumer paid a deposit on them or they may be coming from in some cases an out-of-state location where there was no deposit and they're put in the recycling cart or recycling bin and then there are a variety of materials uh, you know bottles that come in that uh, there are no deposits for but there's from time to time discussions of having a deposit on those uh, particular materials you know most commonly water bottles for example all of those items are important to our material stream um, because, first and foremost, those are items that our homeowners have and they want to get rid of, and they want to get rid of in the most responsible fashion possible most often. Uh, so they present different challenges, obviously. Um, glass, is, as we all know, is, is a challenging commodity. It's, uh, it's, it's rough on equipment. It uh, creates a lot of wear and tear on our processing systems, uh, requires a lot of maintenance, and it can be challenging from time to time to extract that from the other materials that uh, get collected at the curb or at our drop-off centers, for that matter. And we have two drop-off centers, by the way, one in Southfield and one in Novi. The uh, other end of glass is that there's not a particularly lucrative market for that material. Um, you know, it's either going to go uh, to a glass recycler at uh, you know, low value or in some cases negative value, or it's going to go off to the landfill uh, to be used as aggregate substitute, uh, building roads in the landfill, uh, aggregate substitute in drainage beds and seepage beds, and in some cases used as alternate daily cover, what we call ADC in the industry. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's uh, you know, being recycled or reused and not going straight into a landfill cell and, and being buried. And while it's not a particularly uh, lucrative material to process and try to recycle, it is something that we think is important uh, for a variety of reasons. One is it does represent you know, the reuse or recycling of a natural resource. Uh, that we would otherwise have to, you know, mine sand uh, to to replace that uh, material uh, or uh, other types of of aggregate. Uh, And the other aspect of that is that folks want to recycle their glass, and so we feel obligated to recycle that glass for them. Uh, You know, we look at it in some cases, it's a loss leader. Uh, You know, people go into Meyer or Kroger, you know, the, those retailers aren't always making you know profit on their milk and eggs, but they're getting people into the store to, to to shop at those sites. And so we feel, in some cases, the same way about glass. You know, we will take the glass because we want people to recycle. And when they recycle their glass, we know they're going to recycle their cardboard and their paperboard and their their uh, other materials, their milk jugs and, and detergent bottles, those types of things f- for which there are more uh, valuable markets, uh, but uh, there's no question they present a challenge. Um, uh, you know, aluminum and PET are easier to recycle, and those are, you know, water bottles and you know, pop cans, tea cans. Um, the, the magnets and eddy currents and optical sorting equipment can, can more easily extract those from the system than, than glass. So when you're talking specifically about, you know, the collective material values, what you're saying is is you feel 
glass is an important mix in that. And, and without it, you're going to maybe get people who aren't going to recycle because they're not going to be able to do one thing. They're just going to abandon the whole cause. Is that some of it? That's a fair way to characterize it. You know, people have become accustomed for well over 20 years to recycling a certain mix of material. And so they're, they want to be able to uh, recycle these things. And if we start telling them you can recycle this, but you can't recycle that, uh, it's, it's a challenging. Change is hard. And we know that if we tell people, for example, we're not going to take glass any longer, we're still going to get glass because people are just aren't going to adapt to that change right away. And then those people that uh, get the message that we don't want glass are you know, possibly going to stop recycling the other things that we also want them to recycle. So, Roger, let's jump over to you for a second. And, you know, Kenneth, walk us back to, you know, where Michigan started on this deposit run, you know, with the crying Indian, and then kind of take us through where we are today and how many things are, you know, really still coming into that stream. Thanks, Jonathan. I think if you think back to the early 70s, mid-70s, when Michigan was flirting with the idea of a bottle bill, uh, glass and uh, steel were the primary beverage container. And if you think about it, the, the driving force of the bottle bill was actually the Farm Bureau because of litter in the roadways, and it was glass, and it was damaging tires and equipment. So as we progressed and watched the, the use of glass, I mean, the average, uh, the average citizen in Michigan produces 80 pounds of glass a year versus that equivalent in plastic. That's a lot of plastic containers. And so plastic has taken over uh, the industry uh, and the bottle deposit law covers, uh, covers carbonated beverages only. Well, interesting enough, you know, we didn't have bottled water in the 70s. We, Perrier might have been the closest thing we had. And so the whole, the whole picture of what we're consuming has changed since the bottle deposit law was enacted. Um, and currently, the, the bottle deposit law uh, collects 92% uh, redemption rate, which is really good, and I think that's based on the dime. Um, we can see that reflected in the change that Oregon did from a nickel to a dime. They went from 67% to mid-80s. The bottle deposit law works for what it's doing right now, um, but it is uh, in a situation where we can look at some modernization impacts. You and I have talked once before about how Michigan being a peninsula state has a dramatic effect on the success of the deposit law here, where when you have a pass-through state, and we'll use Illinois as an example, you know, you stop at a rest area, you buy a pop, you drive out of the state, you throw it away. Those type of states that are pass-through states don't have the success in terms of recordable records as we do here in the Michigan. Is that correct? Yeah, I would use Iowa since they are a bottle bill state. Um, but the, a pass-through makes a difference. I mean, if, if you're a trucker, you, you pick up a, a can of Mountain Dew and, and, you, and you keep driving, it's probably not going to end up in Iowa. Uh, where Michigan, we have, it's positive and negative to be a peninsula state. You know, our transportation is expensive because if you're coming to Michigan, that's where you're coming to. Um, Iowa can, you know, drive through trucking is, is much more, um, less expensive and, and et cetera. But the capture rate of redemption, redeemable containers in Michigan 
part of it is contributing to being a um, destination state. Okay, so let's dive into um, what we'll call it, for lack of a better word, a controversial question. Which is the better place to send this material? Is it to get it at the curb and get it in the drop-offs and get it to the MRFs as part of the total value stream? Or is it to continue to look at and expand the bottle bill? So we'll bounce back to Mike first and kind of go from there. You know, I might argue that we shouldn't change anything. And and here's why. So we have uh, pros and cons to both systems. And we have uh, a very successful bottle deposit law. There's no question about that. It's, you know, as, as Roger said, its original inception was with the notion that this was an anti-litter law and and it's been very very successful in that and it's been very successful in pulling those resources from the roadsides and from our parks and wild areas and from the landfills and putting them back into the value chain Uh, and i don't know that the folks that have made investments in that system uh, really should suffer because you know we have some different policy ideas about what to do with these materials. Likewise, with the expansion, you know, we have similar investments in material recovery facilities and collection systems and communities have vested themselves in these recycling programs that are important to community stewardship and important to the environment and and an important part of the uh, circular economy. And so to disrupt those uh, systems, likewise, would cause uh, some problems. And let me give you some some numbers to to sort of illustrate what I mean by disrupting those systems. So if you look at just this most recent month or so, our facility in Southfield, which is a very large, at least relative to the other facilities in Michigan, uh, processing facility, um, PET, the clear plastic, which is, you know, comprised uh, to a large degree with water bottles, was 4.8% of our material volume, but 27.3% of our value. Aluminum was 0.3% of our volume, but 5.4% of our revenue. So we rely on those material streams, those high-value material streams, the water bottles, the the tea cans, the uh, unredeemed Coke and beer cans, uh, to help us, from a financial standpoint, process all these materials, including you know losers like glass and low-value items like mixed paper. And so you know we feel that we should not expand the bottle bill to cover those types of things. Uh, because what will end up happening is from a financial standpoint, we'll have to shift those costs on to, to other areas, other consumers. And if I, if I could, the other com- important component of this is um, when we talk about um, you know, getting rid of a bottle bill, and we've seen you know, every legislative session, we've all seen there's a bill introduced to expand the bottle bill, and there's a bill introduced to get rid of the bottle bill. Uh, 
you know, if we go back to, again to the original notion of why there's a bottle bill, it's it's anti-litter. And I've done some calculations on what it would look like at the municipal level uh, if we were to get rid of the bottle bill. And there's no question that from a, the MRF standpoint, from the processing standpoint, we would see more value. We'd get that aluminum. We'd get that PET that's currently going back to the retail settings and going through, um, you know, facilities like those that are operated by ShoePan. Uh, but, you know, so we get that value. That means ShoePan doesn't get that value. So we're really just moving, you know, money from one pocket and putting it into the other. So I don't know if that's, you know, wise use of, of, of policy changes. But beyond that, the other thing I, I came up with when I did a little bit of back-of-the-envelope noodling was that uh, if you look at current participation rates in curbside recycling programs in our communities and you look at the uh, number of homes that don't have access to uh, recycling because they maybe live in apartments and they don't engage in the drop-off usage of the drop-off center, that of the uh, UBCs, the, um, the beverage containers that are currently um, taken back through the deposit system, uh, we would probably only capture 24% of those, leaving 76%, you know, either going to landfill or going back to the roadsides or going to our wild areas. So I'd argue, I'd argue in that case, because we don't have the robust recycling system that we should have with universal access for everybody, making a change in the deposit law is going to, you know, without other means of, you know, engaging the litter issue, we're going to be back where we found ourselves, you know, several decades ago. So you talked real quickly there about universal access, and I know that you've worked at Legislative quite a bit through the Michigan Recycling Coalition and through other organizations here at the state to really expand access. Just let's take a second, let's just talk about the lack of access within Michigan as a whole in your perspective. Well, we know from a variety of analyses that not everybody in Michigan has access to recycling. Uh, perhaps it's because they're in a rural or semi-rural area, and it just uh, doesn't make sense uh, because of population densities and access to processing facilities for recycling to be there yet. Um, perhaps it's in a community that just has struggled uh, from a fiscal standpoint and a financial standpoint, and, and that's one of those services that they don't uh, provide. You know, it's it's challenging to be a municipality in Michigan. We have some idiosyncratic municipal finance laws that really hamstring communities in a lot of ways. And if you look at, for example, state revenue sharing uh, in Michigan communities between 2002 and 2016, uh, it, it dropped $8.6 billion. And during that same period of time, you know, 20, uh, 2008 to, to 2012, taxable value in Michigan fell 13%. And some communities, you know, s saw even more dramatic drops. And so we have communities out there that are getting uh, a lot less revenue than they were, uh, if you consider the, you know, the discount value of money, than they were you know, years ago. And so that doesn't mean that they still don't need to provide the same level of police and fire protection and have the same number of roads to plow and have the same number of potholes to fix and the, you know, all the other public services that are necessary. And at a certain point, you know, 
elected officials and appointed officials have to make really hard decisions about the use of resources and, and, and certain things get cut. And unfortunately, uh, in some cases, it's recycling programs. Despite the popularity of recycling programs and despite the importance of recycling programs when it comes to environmental stewardship and community stewardship and the economic value that they can bring to a community and to the, the circular economy, uh, so we we have communities that just don't have the necessary programs in place, whether they're curbside collection or drop-off, to really robustly address the needs of disposing of all the materials that we consume and then want to discard at the end of their life. So, Roger, pick it up from there and, and kind of the same question. Is there a right or a wrong solution? In a way, I would agree with Mike. Uh we know that the bottle bill works, and we know that curbside recycling can work. And so if you take a state like Minnesota, who far exceeds our recyc- uh, state recycling rate, they're trying to enact a bottle bill. So in my mind, the two work in conjunction with each other, in parallel with each other, um, to maximize collection. So, And that's the goal. It's, it's to maximize collection of clean, usable material. Uh, we took budgets out 30 years ago for education, and now we're realizing that we're paying the hard way for lack of education. Um, so what do we need to do to make, make uh, these things work? We know an incentive works, but how do you incorporate incentive in the current curbside recycling program? It's been tried. And I'm not sure I can tell you that there's been a successful incentive program for curbside. But to go back on a couple things that Mike noted, uh, for example, was glass. We started off conversing about glass. What would happen if a legislator repealed the bottle bill? How would the basically five MRFs in this state manage 200,000 tons of glass that's now entering their system. We don't talk about that. We don't talk, we talk about the value of the aluminum and the water bottle plastic in the system, but we don't talk about that increased equipment wear, uh, that increased uh, requirement to get the, to get their other materials cleaner and to find a market for that. Because we know that only about 46% of the glass that goes through a MRF is actually recycled. So when we talk about glass, though, Roger, there are people that say, you know, of all the things for us to put in a landfill to land apply that doesn't have toxins and doesn't have chemical attributes to it, glass is the best choice. I think you got to go back to what Mike initially said, and that's a natural resource. And it is, I mean, back to our history, it's the most recyclable product we have. You know, aluminum is a 96% energy savings, but glass, especially if you, and if you think about it in a refillable, I mean, we're just talking about let's collect it, crush it, reheat it, and make a bottle out of it. I mean, you've got an entire industry starting up of refillables. That's where we started. So I think, you know, we've got to think about, we've got to rethink glass in itself um, because right now anybody that's in that industry is having a tough time. So manufacturing as we see it today is moving away from glass. You look at 
Snapple, one of the, you know, the lifelong icons of the glass bottle, has moved to plastic. And if we look at plastic compared to glass, what manufacturing has been able to do in plastic, they'll never be able to accomplish in glass. You can't lightweight glass for packaging. Now, if you look at the plastic bottle, you don't go back 10 years, 40,000 bottles made a ton. You go to today, 90,000 water bottles make a ton. You can't take any more plastic out of a water bottle without crushing the bottom pallet when you ship it. So manufacturing is naturally transitioning to these plastics. And, you know, we know that plastics are only 100 years old. And it is, is it an evolution? Do you think that this refillable is going to come back with stride? Or do you think that our single-use economy is going to continue to be where it is? Well, a refillable bottle can be used uh, an average of 15 to 30 times. Um, so, I mean, right there, you know, we're, we're, we're old enough to remember the wear rings on a, on a bottle, you know. And this is an industry that's, that's really getting its foothold in, in, on the West Coast. So, yes, I do think it's in, it's in its stages of coming to Michigan. You know, I'd agree with that, Roger. I would like us to see a transition from this single-use packaging to reuse, refillable, um, or other more environmentally friendly ways of packaging. I mean, I think we can all agree that from a global perspective, you know, we're not going to manufacture, sell, buy, and consume any fewer widgets in the future. And we're always going to need packaging for those widgets, whether they're a consumable commodity or a, a, a uh, you know, something we're going to keep in our home for a longer period of time. But the packaging of those materials has changed. And so we're, we're constantly challenged by that changing uh, packaging content and, uh, you know, if we can begin collectively thinking of better ways to have longer uh, use of these packaging materials, uh, the better off we'll be. You know, Jonathan, you mentioned the inertness of glass and the the um, notion of putting it into a landfill because it is inert. Um, you know, conserving landfill space really is probably... Well, a good reason, probably the, the least important reason for, for recycling. I mean, there's resource use, there's energy savings, there's the value of that material and getting it back into the value chain. And then there's the environmental stewardship and, and community ethos that comes along with the activity of recycling. Uh, you know, the truth is we're probably not going to run out of holes to bury stuff or places to dig new holes to bury stuff, but that doesn't mean that's a good idea. I think, you know, I'm, I think in terms of what Fred Ackerman wrote in Why to Recycle more than 20 years ago, and, you know, in the long run, materials are going to be scarce on this planet. If you look at, you know, uh, the consumption of, of materials and the consumption of natural resources, and as the rest of the planet aspires to have the same standard of living that we have in our advanced economies in places like the United States and Canada and, and Europe and in some of the emerging Asian economies, you know, there's still vast sections of this planet that uh, don't have that same standard of living. And when they um, aspire to and eventually achieve those same standards of living, all that means is that we're going to have greater and greater usage of natural resources. And so just burying these resources in holes just doesn't make a great deal of sense. 
So let's just pause there for one second, though, Mike. So when we talk about, you know, keeping these materials out of the landfill, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, just playing the devil's advocate on some of this stuff. But are we fighting manufacturing? I mean, we c- keep on building and advancing material processing centers and take-back redemption centers to get this material, and manufacturing keeps on naturally trying to reduce cost by getting away from it. And we'll use the Tide bottle as a perfect example. You went from a, a beautifully profitable HDPE plastic, and you brought it down to a colored PET off-spec plastic in the Tide Pod original container, and now they've brought it down to flexible packaging, which, what, 70% of the MRFs in the U.S. don't take. There's no question that the changing product mix and the product packaging mix is is troublesome. I mean, I think of our facility in Southfield as a good example. We reopened after a devastating f- fire that some of your listeners may recall. Uh, and we reopened in 2016 with a brand new facility, brand new equipment. But if you think about what that means, brand new equipment in 2016 means it was purchased in 2015, which means it was, you know, um, engineered, you know, years before that, you know, and conceptualized before that. So it was conceptualized with a certain product mix in mind. And by time we actually, you know, bought it and installed it and began operating it, uh, we were already operating with equipment that wasn't necessarily designed for the product mix that we were going to get. And that's a constantly changing challenge that we have. And so I think it's important for us as consumers to recognize that those things that we purchase uh, have impacts and we need to, through the market system, send messages to our retailers and our manufacturers that uh, we, we appreciate their efforts to lightweight packages and we appreciate the convenience of some of these things. Uh, but by the same token, we want, I think, our uh, corporate uh partners to begin to think in terms of the recyclability and the reusability of some of these items. Uh, and I don't know they're necessarily thinking those terms. And I'm, I'm old enough to, to have had one of my first jobs as a high school student work in a, a beverage uh, 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 manufacturer, uh, you know, a beverage bottler, uh, using those reusable bottles that that Roger uh, spoke of, and uh, yeah, it was an amazing thing. And we'd we'd sort those bottles out uh, by color, and they'd go, you know, in wooden crates onto the line and get washed, and then then refilled and shipped out as as product. And and I'm not saying we're necessarily going to return to our you know, production uh, styles of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but I think that there's some significant opportunities here to rethink how we're uh, consuming materials and how we're trying to think in terms of a circular economy. Don't you think some of that's the Amazon impact, though? I mean, they're taking all the lick, all the water out of Tide. All the water out of Tide to, to reduce shipping costs. So Amazon has a positive and negative impact on it. Oh, there's no question. And it's interesting, you talk about the Amazon impact. One of the things that I noted uh, with a colleague not too long ago is the paper that goes through a facility like ours. You know, the total amount of fiber that goes through our material recovery facility in Southfield on a percentage basis is not less than it was 20 years ago. But it's different. 
and we're not getting the newspaper. Uh, we all know what's happened to the newspaper industry. So we're, we're not getting the same amount of newspaper in, and we're not shipping out the same amount of newsprint. But on a you know pound-for-pound basis, fiber, you know, mixed paper, box board, cardboard, and some newspaper still uh, is, is, is what it was, you know, 20 plus years ago, uh, but it's it's different. It's 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 Amazon boxes and Amazon packaging and 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 the like. So Roger, going back to the redemption system, why should we not put a dime on all the wine bottles and all of the other non redeemables right now? And let's just talk specifically glass. So we've got you know a cottage industry of manufacturers and micro beers and other things that don't have redemptions on them. We've got a lot of wine produced in our state and, and brought into our state that doesn't have redemption on it. And, you know, in previous conversations with you, you know, you've made the point that at the redemption level, we do a much better job of keeping the color separated and not having a colored glass, but having a good quality product glass. So let's just talk through that value a second. I think that's, I think those are the discussion points that have to be raised about the modernization of the current bottle bill. And with north of the knuckles in Michigan, removing glass, period. We're seeing that all over the place. Drop-offs is a challenge. Convenience is king in recycling, so a drop-off is can, sometimes is not always the most convenient way. So uh, expanding and looking at opportunities with wine bottles, liquor bottles, there's many providences in Canada that, that manage those. Um, I don't think that that's a bad idea, but I think it's the a part of the current discussion to look at modernization and maybe relieve some of the stress on a material recover, materials recovery facility with glass. So if we're looking at wine specifically, I mean, so you're buying a $9 bottle of wine. What's a 20-cent deposit on a $9 bottle of wine? I mean... Is that consumer really going to object to that? But at the end of the day, is that consumer really going to bring that back to a redemption center? What's your thought on that, Mike, and then Roger? I suspect that the consumer wouldn't necessarily object. I think the objections are going to come from the liquor stores and the retailers that are selling those materials. And that's where we see a lot of push uh, historically to alter the bottle deposit law because they want to use that space for something else. And I, I don't necessarily blame them for wanting to use that space for something else, but it's, again, it's a, a, an essential part of the system. From strictly a parochial standpoint, if there were a deposit on some of these glass bottles, I would assume that we would get less glass bottles in our curbside bins and carts. Those would go back to retailers, and, and uh, they could be managed through the current deposit system, and then we'd be relieved of having to manage those. And again, like I said earlier, you know, glass isn't, particularly profitable for a materials recovery facility and their negative impacts. My concern would be if the discussion included also expanding to things like water bottles and, and other non-carbonated beverages because then we would be taking valuable material that helps support the recycling of the less valuable material. For this conversation, though, let's just talk glass. So we both know that the glass breaks in the transportation cycle and impregnates into the cardboard and the fiber and lowers that value in certain places and requires those mills to invest more resources in removing it as a contaminant. 
And, you know, what Rogers talked about in the past is, you know, when you color separate the glass, there's a higher value stream to it. It's desired more in the marketplace by those who are going to reuse the glass. So, so talk to that, Roger. The value stream of the different commodities is really important to identify. I, I, I don't see a deposit system of any sorts that, that replaces curbside. And curbside can't replace the deposit law with its ability to redeem 92% of the containers. As Mike said, his, his theoretical maximum is, is 24, 26%, um, I think he said. And the theoretical maximum, as calculated by some professionals that are much smarter than I, is 46. So Mike is being really conservative. If you can't capture it in one way or the other, then a combined effort makes a lot of sense. And if you're going to bring in different materials, then do it strategically and make sense out of it. California has a system which actually gives, gives a rebate back to the MRFs that, that recover deposit material. So there are ways to modernize what we're doing right now that makes a handshake because that's really what we are is a handshake system that does the best job of recovering material with our citizens' support. Okay, understand that. But the, so go back to the question of is the glass a better commodity, a more valuable commodity when it's source separated in a redemption process than when it's put through a materials recovery facility. There's there's no doubt about that. I mean, we have an open market for glass. We're selling glass at a really good rate because our because our clear glass is clear glass and our mixed cullet is green and brown. Period. End of story. We're still getting paid for for mixed cullet. Mike Mike and and material recovery facilities it's impossible because all your fines go to your glass. So then it becomes a negative value, but it is still an emotional product that I don't think, you know, you're, you're going to get a lot of pushback in, in an authority system like Mike is running if you take out glass. In, you know, that's a valid statement that it is a, an emotional decision. And so I think it comes down to... Part of where we're at in single stream recycling today, and I like to use this when I talk with people, is if you go back to the 60s and 70s, we had 15 things that we recycled. We jumped up into the 80s and the 90s, and we increased that to 30 things. But people in America think there's 3,000 things that they can put in that recycle bin. And on the backside, at the MRF level, that results in cost. And so those costs continue to increase, and those look that way. And, and I'll go back to you, Roger, and then I'll go to Mike. Again, I want to say that this is an emotional decision. If I walk out my garage door and I have two containers to put it in, what one makes me feel better to put it in? The recycling bin or the trash bin? And the if in doubt, throw it out mentality goes against the emotion of it. You have to take advantage of that emotional impact to, to help people understand to do the right thing. Because it is costing people. It is hurting people. You put a garden hose in a, in a recycling bin, you're going to hurt somebody, right? So we have to use that emotion to, in our favor. 
Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. It, it's amazing how much effort we go through to educate people in our communities on what they can and can't recycle and how much non-recyclable material we, we continue to get. And it, in part, is due to the fact that the messaging that consumers and homeowners get is that we provide them is overpowered by the messaging that they're getting in the retail settings and the product packaging. Uh, You know, my favorite example is a case of uh, um, water bottles. You know, if you buy, if you do buy bottled water, the the cardboard box that the bottles are sitting in is recyclable. The bottles themselves are recyclable. The caps are recyclable if they stay on the bottles. But that shrink wrap that's wrapped around the case is not particularly recyclable. It's a problem for us, and it's a contaminant, and it gets wrapped in our equipment, and it causes maintenance time and, and to, to, to cut but away something. But it's plastic, Mike. But it's plastic, right. It's, and, and, you know, and companies like Nestle are going to label it as recyclable, and in fine print they're going to say, you know, check with your local program. Or, you know, they, they're slapping all types of other um, you know, sustainability uh, logos on there that lead the consumer, understandably, to believe that eh, they can throw this in their recycling cart and they feel good about it without realizing, you know, that if they check with our guidelines, we don't want those things. And we get the same problem with glass. Back to your question, Jonathan, about glass. You know, we, we do take glass and, you know, it's whether it's the spaghetti jar or the um, you know the tea bottle, or or the 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 coke plastic coke bottle that the homeowner didn't want to take back to the retailer, uh, but we're also getting you know cookware and drinking glasses and types of things that we don't want. You know dangerous things in some cases. I mean, if somebody throws an old window pane in the recycling cart; those shards of glass end up in our system, and you know that's that's not particularly safe to handle. Uh, you know, I, I'm intrigued by your idea of expanding the bottle bill to uh, other types of beverages, but only those beverages that are in glass, because that would reduce the amount of glass that we'd get at our at our MRF. Uh, and while I like that from a parochial standpoint, I'm you know willing willing to consider what impact would that have on the rest of the system, whether it's the retailers or those companies like Shupan that are handling those materials. I mean, that's part of this conversation is really what are the impacts on everybody and what does make the most sense and you know I've I it's interesting when you look at some of these uh, ways of crunching the numbers and you know it's always a matter of which set of numbers are you going to look at and I go back to some calculations I, d- I did earlier about what would happen if we didn't have a deposit law with the material flowing through our facility and as I mentioned yeah we'd, we'd get maybe 20-25% conservatively of the beverage containers that are currently going back in the redemption uh, system so the rest are going to go back you know to places you know we don't necessarily want them to go. Uh, but what that would mean even if we got more glass because they came to us instead of the uh, the, um, the retailers. Uh, you know, it would have meant if I used 2017 values of material, which is probably a good number because it was just on the cusp of the markets going, you know, south, and they're probably good historical average to use. It would have meant about another 2.5 million dollars for our facility. So that sounds great. We get another 2.5 million dollars on an annual basis in processing material. But then another way to look at it would be what would that mean for the recycling rate in our communities? And it would have dr- 
bumped up about a percent. You know, from in 2017, we were 37.2% on aggregate in our communities. Some were less, some were as much as 50%. It would have bumped up to 38.3%. So that's not necessarily a meaningful number to really change an entire system on. You know, likewise, if we look at the value of the material relative to the total system cost on a per-household basis for picking up your trash and picking up your compost and picking up your yard waste and the cost of hazardous waste and those types of things, it would have... It would have raised, um, you know, the the value of the material as as, as a percentage of total cost from from two point one percent to four point five percent. So you know the, that material value, just a small portion of the total cost of dealing with these things at the end of their life, when you consider collection cost for trash recycling and compost, and when you uh, consider disposal costs for those things or composting costs or recycling costs. So it's important to put all these numbers, I think, in context, and they can you know begin to swirl around in our heads. But at the end of the day, I think when we talk about these numbers, it's important that we look at all of them, and then we also look at them from a non-parochial standpoint, but look at them from the perspective of others. And so we understand, here's the impact it may have on us, but here's the impact it may have on the retailers, here's the impact it may have on, uh, you know, companies like Shoepan, and here's the impact it may have on the beverage industry, and here's the impact it will have on our consumers, and then most importantly, here's the potential impact it may have on our, our wild spaces and our roadways. I think when you spoke of the value of, of, and let's go back to the original conversation, the value of the mix, when you bring in what we call uh, used beverage containers, and you mix it with a pie plate and an aluminum food container, then the overall value of that bale is much less than what it is if it's all all one like commodity. And so that's the challenge that I look at it because you're not a bale coming out of your authority and a bale coming out of our facility are dramatically different in value because a hundred percent used beverage container bale can go right back in and be part of that 60-day cycle. You put that can in a reverse vending machine and 60 days, that's back on the shelf full of product for the consumer to buy again. When you do a mix of those that materials, then it goes to a different uh, end use too. So just keep, just keep in mind, I don't think a lot of people understand that plastic isn't plastic and aluminum isn't aluminum. And glass isn't glass. I mean, if you throw in a ceramic pipe um, dinner plate in, I can tell you that's that hurts us. So just keep in mind that commodities aren't all alike. So and that brings us, you know, full circle around to where we are in the news today when we start talking about the Chinese recycling crisis or the China sword. And, you know, China's come back and said, listen, we wanted plastic and you sent us all this other stuff. We don't want all this other stuff. We want plastic. And so, you know, using that mentality, is the reverse vending machine not the best way to pull the glass out of the market space? And if we could convince legislators of that, would that not be the best solution? Again, not looking at plastic single use, not looking at PET water bottles, just looking at glass for a minute. Would we not be better off to say China wanted to take, you know, what was a 3 to 8% contamination rate in a bale and move that down to a 0.5% contamination rate. If you look at what glass looks like as a MRF cullet, I mean, what's the contamination rate in that? 50-50, you know, in some facilities? 
Um, you know, so if we can bring it into a redemption system, does it not make more sense? Is not that the better solution? Mike, I'll let you go first on that. Well, certainly from, strictly from a processing standpoint, as I said earlier, if, if I didn't have all that glass to deal with, our facility would be able to produce a better um, mix of products all the way around and would have less wear and tear on our system. But again, at what price and at what cost and, and, and who's going to bear those costs? You know, is, is the consumer going to be happy about taking the stuff back to the liquor store or the, the, uh, the grocery store? Are those retailers going to be able to accommodate, you know, that new uh, component to the redemption system? Uh, and maybe, maybe not. And then, you know, are we going to have to retrofit a lot of the reverse vending machines to, to handle different size bottles? Um, so there's a lot of considerations there. But, yeah, there's no question that, um, you know, as Roger pointed out, you know, as the material comes into our facility, it's in a much broader array of, of conditions and types. And so our output is going to be different than the material is coming out of a deposit system. And so that just creates challenges for us in terms of processing the material and the safety of our workers and the wear and tear on our equipment as we try to meet the market demands. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm one to not overreact to what's going on with the current global commodities market. Certainly China has, you know, disrupted the market. Uh, but what we're seeing is in, in turn investment domestically in, in North America that's going to begin to handle those materials. So I think there's a silver lining there. I think the other silver lining is it's drawing attention in the popular media to this issue of, of feedstock quality. And, you know, many of us in this industry have been for years trying to educate consumers and homeowners on what is and is not recyclable. And, again, it gets back to, you know, our messaging being countervened by the messaging that they're getting from, from product manufacturers and product packagers. But what we're seeing as a result of this uh, upheaval of the market and then the impact it's having on MRFs and then the impact uh, that go downstream as we have to pass those increased costs along to uh, haulers and then the communities is that the popular media is picking up on this. And I can't tell you how many stories I've done over the past three, four months. Uh, and it's really interesting because it's usually a reporter saying, well, we've, I've heard about this, you know, China thing. What's going on? And, you know, it's like, well, we've been dealing with this for two years. And it's actually just bringing to light an issue that we've been dealing with for, you know, more than a decade. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, again, the silver lining is, is, you know, another platform for us to get the message out about we want people to recycle right, but we want them to, you know, we want them to recycle more, but we want them to recycle right. And so that's why, you know, things like this podcast are good, too, because it gives us not just a platform for talking about, you know, these sort of intricate, complex issues that involve a lot of stakeholders, but it also gives us one more opportunity to say recycle more, but recycle right. Let's let's talk a little bit. Uh, we you, you you were talking about the international impact, and you know, uh, Jonathan talked about product stewardship, and that's that's exactly what's happening in the rest of the world, but not happening in the U.S. Um, and since since two thousand five, there's been twenty one new bottle deposit laws in the in the world, and and here's the kicker since. Um, since in the just in the just last year, twelve of those 
have popped up in just in 2018. So it's counting six point, or I'm sorry, 400 million people are now additionally covered under bottle deposit laws. So it's working. You've got um, major players in the packaging industry, which tend to be our enemy, uh, now going, oh, we're going to recover X amount of our packaging. Coca-Cola has said that over and over again, but they've said it 10 times in the last 10 years. And so, but they're talking about it in a different uh, aspect. They're talking about it from a producer responsibility aspect and making the changes to capture that material. So let, let's actually see if that happens. But the rest of the world is going, bottle deposit laws work. You know, India has one now. That's one of the major additions. And, and if, if that's where the circular economy companies are buying their material is from uh, bottle deposit states, and that if 50% of the, of the material that is, um, that is actually, if 50% of the beverage containers that are actually captured are captured in bottle deposit states in, in the U.S., it makes sense. You know, a complementary component of, of EPR or product stewardship is the governmental um, involvement in banning certain materials. And we're seeing that uh, come along as well. The banning of single-use plastics, the banning of straws, the banning of plastic bags, all of which are problematic. Uh, you know, things like plastic bags are just, you know, I, I joke that they're the bane of my existence because not only, you know, do I seem to have a, a store clerk wanting to give me one at every turn, but, you know, they they get mixed up in our system and they're tangled up in their problems and or they blow around our yard and, you know, and they're, they're a litter problem, they're a processing problem, they're, they're a disposal problem. And there are some jurisdictions that are banning them. Uh, likewise with straws and other types of you know problematic materials and so as we try to engage with product manufacturers and product packagers about you know thinking about the entire system not just their piece of it when it comes to what they produce and what they pass on to the consumers and the homeowners uh, I, I think it's it's important for them to realize you know what the impacts are on us and you know unfortunately in Michigan you know, jurisdictions are pretty well hamstrung from taking those types of approaches because we have, you know, a, a law was passed a while back. Uh, you know, we, many of us jokingly refer to it as the plastic bag ban ban uh, because there were some jurisdictions in the county and local government that were thinking about having a ban on plastic bags or putting a fee on plastic bags, and, you know, vested interests were able to go to the state legislature and get a law passed that prohibited local jurisdictions from enacting those things that they thought were in their own best interest, and I, which I find interesting because the same group of state-level officials that don't like the federal government telling them what to do were more than happy to tell you know, local governments what to do. And so I'm not saying that we need to run around and start banning all types of materials, but I think we need to bring those into the conversation because you know, just like ex expanding deposits for certain items to make sure that there is a degree of product stewardship along the way by the consumers and users of those materials. Likewise, bans can play an important role in making sure that uh, you know those consumers are, are not giving something uh, for which they don't have very good choices when it comes to the end of the, the life of those products. 
But I think the increase in efforts to ban commodities is an awareness, a growing awareness and a growing green wave that's pushing people to understand these these things are challenges. You know, I spent yesterday doing a, working in the depackaging part of our of our uh, plant and looking at the layers and layers and layers of something that was packaged. I mean, it's not just a bottle in a crate or a, 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 a box. It's got paperboard wrap around that and then a box around that. There's three layers of packaging and everything. So, I mean, I think these growing bands show that they're maybe, maybe I'm not sure if it's generational or where it's coming from, but it's I think it's a general awareness that we need to change our ways. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with that, Roger. And I think that that growing awareness um, is really the most important part of this uh, because we, you know we have as consumers an opportunity to become aware of the impacts of the things that we buy, and what well, what are we going to do with these things when we're done with them? So if, if you know if I have to take the the vodka bottle back to the liquor store because you know I it doesn't belong in the trash can, and if I put it in my recycling cart, it's a problem. Then, then, then so be it. And if you know, if I have to, you know, not have those layers of packaging that I might, you know, be comfortable with as a as a product shipper, um, then well, then then so be it. Because you know, my actions have impacts on others. So going back to that original question, though, what's the better home for the material? Do we put it in a redemption system, or do we take it at the MRF, or? Do we go like our good friends are doing down in Kansas City, look at Ripple Glass, who's going this movement to go back old school and source separate glass out of the recycle system, but still collect it from the user either as a drop-off or from the retailer or from the bar to get as much glass as they can out of their community? Is there a hybrid that makes more sense than just this or that? Honestly, Jonathan, it's it's not one answer. It's it's we know that convenience is king. And so if Mike has a place to drop off glass and they choose to donate the glass, let's say there's a deposit on that wine bottle and they just choose to donate that glass bottle to, to Mike, there's an option at a redemption center. Uh, Oregon is pushing bottle drop programs. So there's all sorts of different Access, I mean, through the deposit system in Michigan, you have 6,000 retailers that you can take it back to. That spreads that material out and, and lessens the burden on any one. Um, you've got Mike's opportunities, multiple drop-off sites. You know, you look at the modernization that I've spoken about three times already. <coughs> Oregon's doing some really cool things with their program uh, that that tighten up on fraud because that's an issue that we need to be aware of. Um, it's not as big as, as some people talk about. We've done a great job of, of working in the fraud aspects of it, but it, I think it is a multiple points of contact to maximize capture rates, period. You know, I, I, that's a good way to say it. You know, m multiple, multiple ways of dealing with a complex problem. And I think, you know, to your question, Jonathan, you know, I think the the answer is going to vary by material. It's going to vary by geography. Uh, what works in Southfield or Detroit is not necessarily going to be what's best for, 
you know, Marquette or Alpena or some even more rural part of the state. And, and so I think it is going to vary. And, you know, the other thing that we haven't talked about today, but I think it's probably something that I might bring into the conversation is, is the sheet funding. You know, we have a system in place right now where those unredeemed deposits are by law diverted into things like the cleanup and redevelopment trust fund and then those monies go through various channels and sometimes the legislature uh, through its budgeting process will divert those into things that maybe they weren't originally intended for uh, and so it's important to really track that and and i don't have up-to-date numbers but i know in 2015 uh, you know, it was we we're talking about $21 million worth of the sheets, and 25% of that goes to the retailers to help offset their costs associated with that. I'm sure they'll tell you it doesn't come anywhere near offsetting their costs or at least their opportunity costs. Uh, but, you know, that still left, you know, $16 million into the cleanup and redevelopment trust fund. Uh, and if that money, you know, is going back to, um, say, brownfield cleanup, well, at the end of the last uh legislative session, uh, there was the Renew Michigan Fund was established, which includes a significant amount of money for that cleanup and redevelopment. So that, to me, begs the question, what are we going to do with that $16 million or so that uh, is targeted under the deposit law to go back to cleanup and redevelopment? Do we now have a fund that covers that cost? And so what would we do with the $16 million? And if we were to expand the deposit law to other items like, as you suggested, you know, liquor bottles or what have you, then what does that do to the size of that as cheap fund? And, and then how are we going to make sensible use of those monies? I, I could see what Oregon's doing with the bottle drop program, and that's that's where that money could to, could go to increase those points of contact. And so if we did a more comprehensive bottle drop program across Michigan, it would, of course, remove a large percentage of the bottles from the MRF. Um, if we did a good job of educating residents of saying, hey, listen, in the bin, we don't take glass. But if you want to make glass go away, it goes here. And this is where it goes, either a bottle drop or a redemption center. That would help the MRF out because, you know, as Mike said, if you look at the MRF infrastructure compared to Shupan's infrastructure, that aggregate glass is a wear on the equipment. It wears the belts. It shortens the lifespan of the belts. It gets caught in the, the bearings of the rollers. It shortens the lifespans of the, the whole conveyoring system. It is, you know... Uh, uh, injury potential for our people. Um, you know, when they're sorting contaminants out on the pre-sort line and there's broken glass in it, there's the opportunity that we have to up their PPE, their personal protection equipment, so they're not getting cut, which is an additional cost. And so, in my opinion, not that there's ever going to be one answer or another that makes sense, but source separating glass back out of the MRF whether it's at a drop center or it's through the bottle deposit, has a lot of advantages for the MRF and able to process materials at a better grade. But additionally, it helps the residents start to understand that, you know, you go back to that 1533,000 number I used on what are the items that are acceptable in your can, that the 3,000 number doesn't exist. And you know, when I have that conversation with people, a lot of times they say, hey, look at this stapler. There's metal, there's plastic, there's rubber. <coughs> you know, there's all these things in this stapler. Do you think that goes into your single stream recycling? Well, yeah, it's metal. 
Well, no, it's, that's not what the single-stream MRF is looking for. Now, can that go into a mixed metal bin? Absolutely. But is that MRF going to pick that stapler out and make it go there? Probably not. It's going to end up on the backside of line as dunnage. And I think that same problem comes in with glass. When glass breaks in the transportation mechanism, it gets mixed with the other materials. And when it's mixed with the other materials, it becomes a lower-grade product. And a large percentage of it ends up in the fines at the end. That just becomes landfill right out of the gate. So are we really doing a good injustice to glass by sending it through a MRF versus sending it through another process? Although you'd never get rid of all the glass out of it. We know that. But... Mike, do you have an idea what the increased value of cardboard would be if it didn't have glass embedded in it? I, I really don't. I, I think we can assume it would be higher. Um, certainly the wear and tear, as Jonathan pointed out, on our equipment would be less, and so there would be you know capital improvements that have to be made now that wouldn't have to be made in the future, and it'd be... Uh, an easier job of sorting out the, the, uh, the materials into the various commodity grades. You know, the other um, thing, though, that you point out is we're still going to get glass. I mean, you know, the Prego jar, the, you know, my wife's a, you know, Paul Newman Saccharoni fan, so that's what she you know, seeds her spaghetti sauce with. And so I'm not going to stop having, you know, Pray, uh, Paul Newman spaghetti jars to get rid of, uh, and I don't think that you know Meyer wants me to bring them back. So uh, we'll still have to have a home for those, and I think that's still going to be you know for a, a long time coming the MRF. Uh, but if we can use these issues to to educate people on you know what some of the alternatives might be, I think I think we're we're certainly going to be better off for it. Communities like yours, your authority really set the best in class for programs because you have a consistency in your nine communities of all the materials that you take. But if that person moves out of your area of authority, their recycling system changes. Almost guarantee it, right? Yes and no. I mean, there certainly are a lot of variations from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, from facility to facility and program to program. But I am seeing some movement towards more uniformity and more consistency, and I think that's important for us to do because, you know, we get these calls all the time uh, where, you know, people will be surprised that we don't do something or they're surprised that we do do something because their former place that they live either did or did not do this, the thing that we're talking about. And, you know, people move into an area, and as Jonathan pointed out, you know, we have all these things, and they think, well, it's recyclable, I'm going to put it in. I used to recycle it at my old home, and then they find out, you know, somewhere down the line, oh, I shouldn't have been putting that in my recycling cart, and I've been doing it. I feel so so badly. And they say, well, we've been you know, trying to educate you, but, uh, you know, the messaging just isn't, hasn't reached you yet. And, you know, the other component of that is um, – you know, we we transition to this single stream system for very good reasons. We can get more material, we can use carts. It's more convenient for people, but it comes with its challenges. And as, when you look at the cost of recycling this stuff in terms of processing and sending it to market, as part of the overall package of services, which includes transportation, it makes sense. But we did that in 
for very good reasons. And one of those reasons is, as Jonathan mentioned, we are really convenience-oriented in the United States. That's not the case everywhere. And there are certainly places where a lot more source separation takes place, whether it's at the curb or on the public street. And there's a lot more things that people have to do to manage the stuff that they buy and bring into their homes. In the United States, we've made it very convenient for people to buy stuff and then throw it away or, in some cases, recycle it. Uh, but it doesn't have to be like that. It's just that's the system that we've chosen. I think overall the U United States wastes a lot more than those other countries too, so you're not managing the mass quantities that you do in the U.S. I think you're right, and I think you know in some places it's a function of the space that they have to deal with those materials as well. You know, um, But I think, I think most people want to do the right thing, and I think – the authority system that you've set up, making consistent materials, makes your education a little less expensive and a little less problematic. And so I think we've got to make, we've got to look at the recycling industry. Um, you know, I just, I just was taking notes on how many acronyms we used today. Alone in that, you know, we don't do a good job of talking to the people and helping them understand our foreign language. And so if we're doing that here, we're doing that WTF, in our Roger, what are you talking about? <laughs> LOL. So as we wrap this up, guys, we're an hour into this. You know, let's kind of cycle back to the question we started with. You know, and just each of you take a moment and kind of walk through it. Is there a right or wrong answer to glass? Is convincing manufacturing to step away from glass to plastics to reverse the impregnating of the other materials an option that makes sense or because glass is so innate and so recyclable, do we want to continue to move back towards that? You know, just kind of pull that whole ball that we've been kind of talking back into a summary statement for yourself and, and your operations is what's the best solution for glass? And I know that's a hard question. I know it's hard to answer, but we all in this, at the end of the day, we represent organizations, but we have our own personal opinions, right? And so those that are listening to this podcast know that when Mike or Roger states their opinion, it may not be the opinion of their organization, but it's our larger collective opinion of what we've learned as individuals as we've traveled through the recycling industry. And, you know, I think looking back at my experience that there isn't a right or wrong answer, but I do believe getting it out of the MRF stream would be a huge improvement to everyone. And I think it would be a very big key item to help people start realizing that not everything's recyclable at the curb. And that's a problem that we have in the United States with education. You know, and you go back to the empty, clean, dry model, you know, that's hard enough to educate people on. Do I, I really got to take the peanut butter out of my peanut butter jar? Really? Seriously? But when you start saying, okay, listen, you can't put plastic bags in there. And they go, well, it's plastic. But glass is so isolated. I mean, it's like Mike said, it's a spaghetti jar, it's a wine or liquor bottle, it's a beverage bottle. Those are the three things that glass comes in at the residential home. Yeah, is there plate glasses, there mirrors, absolutely, but 
That's not the vast majority of materials coming out of a house. So looking at those three items, you know, wine and liquor, um, beverage and product jars, if we can isolate that material away from the MRF, does it make us have a better program all around? And I'll start with Roger. Well, I did some calculations, and that's 784 million pounds of glass in Michigan. And we do 200,000 tons of glass through the deposit system. So you're talking about a considerable amount of glass outside the deposit system. And so what's the best way to do it? I think we've talked about it. I think we've, we all know that it's, it's a multiple points of contact. It's convenience. You have to be convenient or you have to be convenient as trash. We've always said that. And so I think for, for glass, a good start would be um, to look at it through a system that isolates it, whether it is a drop-off or whether it is a deposit system. So I wouldn't disagree with, with that notion, Roger, uh, but I think, you know, unfortunately we're stuck with the environment in which we exist, and that's one of convenience. And so, you know, we are going to continue to have to figure out how are we going to conveniently accommodate uh, the needs of our homeowners and our residents and our taxpayers. And I think that that means, you know, for the time being, we're going to continue to accept glass because, you know, we want to make sure, A, that that glass gets recycled or reused in some form or fashion. And while, you know, the way we handle it, the MRF might not be ultimately the best for that individual commodity, it's a piece of the pie and it's a piece of the system. So we, you know, we have to take it so I can get the aluminum and the plastic and the paper materials that I want from those folks. And so in, in the interim, until we can come up with a better solution that integrates the needs of all the stakeholders, uh, you know, we need to focus on education for the homeowners, but then focus on what can we do at the MRF level to better handle this material to produce an even better product. And that's going to require equipment changes. That's going to require maybe the research and development of, of new equipment, and it's going to require better training at the MRF level for our employees from both a safety standpoint and a material quality standpoint. But I think we've all seen that. I think uh, most of material, most of the material that runs through the shoe pan facility has always stayed domestic. So our our water bottle plastic stays domestic, our aluminum stays domestic, etc. But some of our byproducts of what we do, such as every mom and pop. Um, convenience store bags their bottles and cans. So that bag that we use to market, that LDPE, there I go using an acronym, doesn't have a home anymore. But what? why doesn't it have a home? Because we don't take the time to slow the line down to pull every can and every water and every pop bottle out of it. So it's got a mixture of three commodities in it. Well, in this world right now, Companies that are reusing that material are going to buy the they they can buy the best commodity because they have access to it. So anybody with a lower grade, good luck. So we have to look at sorting things differently, managing our equipment differently, managing our outputs differently. Even as even with our relatively small stream of materials compared to, you know, your Southfield facility. So as we wrap this up, guys, you know, let's leave the listeners with your best action item takeaway. How can they personally improve their efforts 
at recycling. Roger, go ahead. When I read that question and looked at that, I said that every consumer has a power in their wallet or their purse. They can decide what to buy and what not to buy. And an educated consumer looking at a multi-packaged material is the, is the point that makes the difference. I sat in and listened to Meyer the other day, and they said, well, you know, we're going to do what the consumer wants us to do. We're going to sell what the consumer wants us to do. So use your money wisely and buy those products, products that you know in your facilities, in your communities can be recycled, and let your money speak for itself. Well, that was going to be my answer. But but to, to expand on that, in addition to, you know, buying wisely, it's it's pay attention to what is happening in your own local community. You know, what are the programs in place, whether it's, you know, curbside recycling or drop-off, learn what goes in those bins and containers. And then also investigate, you know, things like household hazardous waste drop-offs and those other types of opportunities to dispose of these things at the end of their life. And, and don't rely on what you may be finding uh, uh, the product packages are telling you. One of my favorite examples that, that I use is sort of outside uh, our lane here is, is flushable wipes. Uh, you know, there's not a wastewater treatment plant operator in America that wants flushable wipes in that system. But the flushable wipe manufacturers and those retailers that sell those products, you know, are happy to have, you know, f the word flushable and sustainable and recycling slapped all over that product packaging. And so that's not, you know, what we want. And so, you know, the consumer needs to educate themselves about those things to, you know, continue Roger's point and realize that what you might be reading on some product packaging or reading on the product itself is not necessarily uh, what works best uh, at the end of the life of that product when, in your own community. And it really does come down to, you know, what's going on in your community. That's the skinny on glass, folks. And I hope that through this conversation, you've picked up one, two, three, five, six, fifteen 15 things that made more sense to you because we've covered a large gambit here. But I think at the end of the day, what's important to know is that glass is a renewable resource that we have the obligation to recycle. And we need to find homes for that material that makes sense within our communities. Now, we've seen across the country, lots of different communities have started to ban glass in their curbside pickup because of economics. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's a unchangeable philosophy. That means that you need to speak back up at your local legislative level and tell them that that's important to you and tell them that if it costs more to make that happen, that you as a resident within that community are willing to shoulder some of that cost. We in, in the United States believe in a lot of cases that recycling should be free. And that's not necessarily where we need to think about this. This is a materials management solution, folks. And it's up to you to decide that choosing the right path for the right item makes sense for you as not only a human, but you as part of this one blue planet. So thanks very much again for tuning into the Recycler Secrets. And thank you very much to Roger and Mike for being here. Uh, you'll find their contact information in the show notes along with some other resources. And stay tuned for the quick bonus episode that follows this one. Thanks very much and have a great day.